Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is Free Exchange from CapEx. I'm Robert Colville, CapEx's editor. I'm here with Michael Heseltine. Lord Heseltine is one of the most distinguished figures in the Conservative Party. He was a self-made uh, businessman as a property developer and uh, publishing magnate, and then uh, in politics has held many of the highest offices in the land. His fingerprints are on many of the most important uh, policy decisions made by the Conservative Party, from right to buy up to the industrial strategy. But now he also finds himself increasingly at odds with his party over Brexit. So, um, Lord Heseltine, looking at the political situation at the moment, do you see any cause for optimism for your party? I see no cause for optimism in Brexit. I think it is the most catastrophic decision that has been made in British domestic politics in my lifetime. Um, I sad to say that, but I see no evidence to contradict that judgment. And there is no sort of, there's no form of Brexit. There's no potential alternative that you see as being potentially sort of salvaging the situation. Well, every form of Brexit of which I'm aware diminishes our economic potential and undermines our ability to influence world events. Uh, We are taking a step apart from one of the growing powerhouses of the world in which our own self-interest is inextricably interwoven. Uh, They will continue their journey without us, but we as a very close neighbour will still trade with them and be involved with them in many other things, but they will tell us the conditions on which that can happen. I find that quite unacceptable, but that is the world which, at the moment, is dawning before us. And do you think there's any chance that that it won't happen? Yes, I think there is a chance it won't happen. Uh, There's a long way to go, and It's quite apparent at the moment that no one has any idea what the relationship with Europe will be uh, and and very little idea of the price that we will have to pay. I'm not thinking just in terms of uh, price to access the market, but price in terms of lost investment and lost economic potential. That position will, I think, change as the negotiations proceed and people realise more clearly 
what they voted for. That, at the moment, public opinion has not shown any sign of changing, but then we've been living in a sort of fool's paradise, unbelievably recovering from 2008. We've suddenly started rising personal debt and national debt again. You'd have thought we'd have learned a lesson, but uh, we haven't, and surely there will be a price to pay for that. Interest rates are likely to rise, inflation is beginning to rise, and at the moment we have no clear view as to what our relationship with Europe will be. That creates uncertainty, that damages investment. And um, also, the on, on, the, on the government debt side, the tide seems to be turning against austerity or... Uh, you know, in, in the last few weeks, we've seen public pay re- restrictions relaxed. There seems to be a feeling that, you know, to satisfy the voters, we should just carry on putting off and off and off the uh, the day of reckoning. Well, not so much putting it off, actually increasing the scale. Uh, the uh, amount of mere borrowing this year is rising. And uh, so the future generations will have bigger debt to confront but isn't there an argument, in, in terms of Europe at least, that say you know, it, it does turn out to be a disaster and we go and we ask for to, to come back in, wouldn't we sort of have to come back in on such bad terms that the, the whole problem would be be even worse? You know, the, you, you forget about the rebate, forget about opt-outs, forget about um, all the rest of it. Well, no one has the first idea what the terms of us leaving are going to be, let alone what the terms of some future negotiations to reaccess would be. I, I, I myself believe that the chances are, if we do leave, that there will one day be a return. But I think it's completely fanciful to try and work out terms on which that will happen or even when it will happen. And, I mean, one of the sort of interesting things about your, your position is that it used to be a fairly mainstream one within the within the Conservative Party, which, I mean, did you, do you feel that you moved away from the party or the party moved away from you over the, over the years? I haven't moved at all. I know exactly what I heard every leader of the Conservative Party, starting with Winston Churchill, said in analysis of Britain's changing role in the world. I thought they were right. I supported them. And I am as convinced of their arguments today as they were when they first produced them. Uh, the, the Conservative Party has changed, not me. Although with things like the single currency, I mean, there were at, at that point you were at odds with quite a lot of of your party, and and ultimately, I mean, it, it wasn't. It's hard to argue it's been a success. I said that. I think one day we will join the euro. I believe that. Uh, I think it would be quite interesting if if you could, and you can't on a radio broadcast, but if you were to produce the headlines of the tabloid British press describing the euro in the most horrific terms, civil war on the streets, all this sort of thing, and you look at modern Europe today, uh, they were lying. They completely underestimate the determination of, at the heart, the Franco-German alliance to create a united Europe. That's been their determination since the 40s. We have misunderstood it or ignored it. And they have continued. 
and they are today stronger, more united, more influential on the world stage than they have ever been. There has been a significant devaluation of the pound against the euro since the Brexit result. Um, and we are now in a position, I find it a humiliating position, where the Europeans are telling us the conditions on which we can have a continuing relationship. We're not telling them, they're telling us. So, 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 there, so there is absolutely nothing good that could come from Brexit, in, in your view? There were no, there were no silver linings to the... I, I haven't heard any argument that produces such a, a, a silver lining. I never believed there was an alternative. Um, uh, but I read all the speeches that, that others who do believe in Brexit make, and they're either a deception, like the £350 million a week that uh, was going to go into the health service, or they're based on a complete misunderstanding of the modern world. Let me give you an example. I'm told that a large number of British companies are going to be freed from the European market in order to uh, expand into the world markets that are waiting for us. If you look at Britain's exporters, they are already exporting in many of these markets. But more interestingly, a significant number of our biggest markets have come into this country because they want access to the European market. They have got assembly plants all over the world. You take Toyota, they have a manufacturing facility in the United States. So if they want to expand their car exports to America, they'll do it from their American plant. How many British companies Company, how many companies operating in this country as part of major world global chains are actually going to export in competition with their own factories in different parts of the world? No one has given an answer to that question. Let's just take the City of London. The City of London has been a huge success. Why? Because it is the financial center of Europe, of the European marketplace. Very large numbers of large companies international companies have come, invested there, established a presence there, and it has enormously enhanced the wealth of our country. But they are world-class companies. They already have centers in Shanghai and Mumbai and Frankfurt and all these, uh, New York, of course, a lot of them are American companies. They're already operating in all these economies. If they see an opportunity to expand there, they won't expand from London, they will expand their own businesses in those new territories. So show me what the advantages are to them in London from Brexit. It undermines the whole rationale for their uh, existence here, but it doesn't do anything for Britain's position overseas. So moving on to another equally depressing subject is the, uh, well, from your perspective, is the um, the state of the Conservative Party. It, it must be a sort of slightly odd feeling, having been there in the 70s and 80s, having fought the battles, having, you know, having driven people, not just people like Jeremy Corbyn, but to Jeremy Corbyn himself, <laughs> the very same people, having driv- effectively driven from them from the field, to now see them sort of re- on the, on, apparently on the brink of uh, power. It's a chilling prospect. 
I never thought to believe for an instant that it would be credible. But the last election has, I'm afraid, changed my mind. I think that the present position of the Conservative Party and the likely electoral timing that we face does now open up the horrific prospect of Mr Corbyn entering number 10. And is that due, you think, to the campaign itself, to Theresa May's personality, or to a bigger sort of failure to... Sort of commu- a, bigger, a bigger sort of post-crash feeling that the system wasn't delivering for people? The, the post-crash period since 2008 has been um, very difficult for Western governments across the world. The over-expenditure, the higher indebtedness of both people and governments and companies forced a period of retrenchment. And that meant frozen living standards. And freezing living standards means political unpopularity. So we've been through a very chilling experience. And I don't see, in the short term, a recovery from that position. I don't, there isn't any easy available cash. If you spend more, you have to tax more or borrow more. There's a consequence that is downside in both of those situations. And uh, I think we face an election in two years' time. Uh, I don't see how the government actually raises living standards in that time. And in those circumstances, the argument time for a change the killing argument that lets oppositions win in politics will be credible. Yes, and and of course, there's a generation who don't re- now voting who don't remember any of the you know, any any of the bad stuff. Well, the interesting thing about the new generation is, uh, rather as you suggest, that the traditional weapons of memory and fear of the dangers of a left-wing Labour government uh, were used with great ferocity in the recent election, and they didn't really work. So why should they work even more effectively if they're tried again in a couple of years' time? And I mean, is, is there an argument that the, the Thatcher Revolution sowed some of the seeds of its own... of our current problems. So take right to, to buy. This is a, a policy which you oversaw. It was an, an, an enormous uh, success. You offer six million people the chance to buy their own council homes. Two million people accept it. I think you've called it you know, the largest transfer of property from states to individuals in in the history of this, this country, perhaps. And But then... Over the next 30 years, we don't build any more, <laughs> any more houses to give to the, the, the next generation. The deal I did over council house sales was that we gave generous discounts to the owners to buy, but we agreed to spend three quarters of the proceeds on rebuilding or new building of social housing. That was the deal I did. In other words, we used capital receipts to invest in the future. Within a very short time of my departure from the scene to be Secretary of State for Defence, that agreement was torn up and the money was used to stimulate consumption by tax cuts. 
that was the beginning of the problem for social housing. We went for a high consumption policy, politically popular in the short term, to the expense of the capital investment programs of the public sector. And I suppose that ties in with the other strand of your career, which is investment in, well, one of the many other strands of your career, which is investment in the regions and in, I mean, Liverpool most, most famously. No, not most famous. Well, oh, well. <laughs> uh, London Docklands. Sorry, uh, yes. I, it's a different scale to anything that happened in Liverpool. And indeed, I did more for Manchester than I did for Liverpool. So it, the, the, the reality is that I am an investor as opposed to a consumer when it comes to public policy. Now, you've got to have a balance, of course, but that the balance in this country has been too much for consumption and too little for capital investment. Um, you, you just look at the sort of the sovereign wealth funds that people, countries like Norway created on the back of their oil revenues. We, we spent our oil revenues, too much consumption. Um, so, that's where the division lies um, for me and my political career and still such as it is, still is, is all about how to rebuild and how to reinvest in the great industrial centres that made this country. And so what, well, actually, there was a question I was going to ask, What's, what, where would you be investing that we, we currently aren't? Well, <laughs> if you, I'm sure you've realised that as a question, that has got so many uh, um, uh, answers. But my principal answer is that I'm now working on an, a document about an industrial strategy, which sets out comprehensively across the economy how we should be moving forward. And it will have a lot to say about uh, where the new investments should be and who should influence them and uh, the method in which they should be calculated. And is that something you're producing of your own volition? Yes. Or? I was doing it for government, but uh, when I was sacked, obviously I couldn't go on doing that in government. So I'm now doing it um, as an example of political private enterprise. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to Bluehost.com Wondersuite. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. 
Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. What, what sort of formed this, this shape of thinking? Why, why are you, why is your Toryism this kind of, why, why, why do you, what, what, what in your sort of upbringing or your thought led you to this particular wing of the party, uh, which has often, as, as I sort of said, put you, at, put you at odds with many of the people around you? Yes, I, I cover this in, in my industrial strategy paper, uh, how I came into public life with a background of a guy who started a business on a very small scale and seen it grow. With, and I had all the prejudices that, quite understandably, anyone who's been through the rough and tumble of that experience has got. And I share all those. I understand them very clearly. But then I suddenly found myself, uh, as a minister, dealing with the complexities of government's relationship with the private sector. And I realized that not only in this country, but in every advanced country, the relationship between government and the wealth-creating processes is so interwoven and so fundamental to the effectiveness of an economy that you can't sensibly conclude that governments are not involved or don't have a view. Um, now, most people would say, yes, we do have a view. Let's, let's cut taxes or get rid of some civil servants and tear up the forms and eliminate the red tape. That's our industrial strategy. But that doesn't begin to answer, A, what every other country is doing, and B, the reality of being a minister taking the sort of decisions I had to take. Um, and, and so my, my view was completely changed by the experience of government. But it, it's interesting that George, it feels like George Osborne went on a similar journey. He started off as Shadow Chancellor talking about flat taxes. And uh, then over, sort of over the years, and especially once he becomes in fact, it, it becomes, you get things like the industrial strategy and northern powerhouse and targeted investment. Is that, is, is, is that a sort of a natural part of being, being in that position, you, you think? Well, I happen to think that George Osborne was an exceptional chancellor, and I worked very closely with him. He, I think he probably did change his views in, from, in the light of experience. I hope that uh, things like my report on uh, um, No Stone Unturned and on devolution played a formative role in his thinking. But equally, the, my earlier activities in working for David Cameron on, on uh, the devolution agenda and the mayoral authorities and all of that were all part of the evolution of the uh, coalition and then the national government's position. Uh, so I'm sure he went through the same learning curve that I remember, but of course I went through it in the 1970s. And, and do you, I mean, do you think he'll be back? I hope he'll be back. He should be back. He is an exceptionally talented and and very strategic politician. And, um, I mean, I was going to ask this later on, but it's actually got a good moment. I mean, who are the of the other politicians you've you've worked with, especially the party leaders? I mean, where do they? Who are the sort of the ones you really? liked and got on with and respected well, and who are, the one, who are the ones where you... There are those of whom I would be more than happy to name but I'm not going to name them because that doesn't serve their self-interest at all being associated with me. I always say to all of them, look, don't have anything to do with me because I'm a controversial figure. 
and there's no need for you to become involved in my controversy. So um, I don't do personalities. So one of the um, probably possibly apocryphal stories about you is, the, is this, the, the idea that you sketched out your career plan. Yeah, I, yeah, I know this story. I don't. And, and it's, it's, it's and it's not. It's not. I don't believe it's true. It's not in, in character with me. But, but you but you certainly had, and I suppose an, an, an energy to you and an ambition and determination, which yeah, all of that, which which is. I mean, do you do you think British the world? Have have things changed, or is British politics still sort of hostile to people of ambition? I, nothing changes in politics. Read Shakespeare, but I'm sure he got it all from the Greeks. <laughs> Becoming prime minister was the the was you know you used to look into Margaret Thatcher, Margaret Thatcher and were were often spoken of during the major premiership as a as a potential successor. Although to your, to your credit, you said you absolutely sort of trod on that as. Well, but what I was wondering was, were there any other jobs that you that you wish you'd had? Because I mean, you obviously did a, a, filled quite a lot of seats around the cabinet table over the years. I was extremely lucky in having jobs that I felt were hugely worthwhile, an, an enormous privilege, uh, and in each one there was a strong element of industrial strategy. If I could have changed the sequence of my political experience, I would like to have gone to the Board of Trade earlier. That was the department that I really felt I could make a difference. Um, and it didn't come to me until quite late, but I was very happy to be there. But of course, uh, the Ministry of Defence, which was, I mean, an enormous privilege to, to serve in that, that department, had a very important industrial relation uh, in strategic view. But I was in the DTI as a junior minister in the uh, 70s. And uh, so it was in that role that I first really got involved in facing the dilemmas of Rolls-Royce, of Concorde, um, the space policy. Those issues are not solved by jargon. And I understand you were also approached to be the candidate for Mayor of London uh, originally. Oh, yes, that did happen. William Hague asked me if I'd do that. Uh, I, I thought that that would not have been uh, sensible in 97, I think. I'd had a heart attack, and I'd not. that was in the early 90s, but I'd had angina trouble in, in the election of 97. So um, I, I didn't see myself conducting an active political career after that. But of course, you have um, you, you have you had extraordinary extraordinary influence really over the over the in the the last few few, few decades. Yes, but um, the, <laughs> there's a world of difference between writing at your leisure. Uh, accepting invitations to broadcast or speak uh, at convenient hours and actually getting up every morning and working till late under the pressures of what a political career amounts to. People don't, I mean, they, people don't really understand the 24-7 the exposure that frontline politics requires. Did you did you understand it when you were going into it? I mean, would you, would you go back and tell your younger self it's all worth it? 
Well, I, I, yes, it's certainly worth it, I, but I would, I would give them another piece of advice. If you need to ask my judgment as to whether you should do it, don't do it. It's something you either know you have to do and you're up for the pressures of the, the, the journey or don't do it. And but you also, I mean, you also obviously went into 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 business first. Was that always a sort of? Did you always sort of see that as a, a necessary preliminary? Or, or? Well, it, it certainly fitted in with the thought that one would need to be financially independent. That proved a very wise decision. But it 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 actually arose because I when I came to London as an article clerk to a firm of um, city accountants, Pete Marwick's, they were going to pay me seven pounds a week, and that's half what my peer group of graduates at that time were earning about twelve thirteen pounds a week. But I had a thousand pounds, which my grandparents had accumulated in tiny amounts over twenty years for me, and um, so I thought, well, that's fine. A thousand pounds, three years articles, six pounds a week, I can live at the same rate as my peer group. And then the most, arguably, most formative decision of my life, I suddenly said, but I won't have a thousand pounds. So I found a friend who got a thousand pounds, and we bought a boarding house, and we lived in the boarding house and subset let the rooms. And that the rest is history. Yes, and the, 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 I mean, again, possibly apocryphal stories of your cooking the breakfast at the at the weekends. Oh well, it, well, it wasn't before the weekends. I, I have to tell you, that was the second stage when we sold the boarding house and bought a hotel. And of course, as inevitably happens, the chef walked out one night. The next morning, I was up doing the breakfast. <laughs> and then, and then, of course, you moved into publishing. Uh, we, in fact, we're, we're, we're talking in the offices of Haymarket. Another another fluke. Um, phone call when I was in the hotel by now in 1957 from a great friend of mine from Oxford called Clive Labovitch. He'd bought a business, he wanted my advice, I got a cab, I gave him my advice, he said, that's good advice, why don't you join me? I was in publishing. (laughs) And the the other sort of thread that runs through your your career in in the personal world is is your love of uh, of nature. Yes. You've, um, you've, you're, you're, uh, your, your arboretum at Thenford, for example, is um, something you've spent many, many years? Uh, 40 years 40 with years. my wife building that. But my, my love of uh, uh, natural uh, the environment and, uh, and all that goes with it, that came as a child. I mean, I can remember my grandfather walking me up Klein Valley near Swansea, looking at all the little elvers, uh, baby eels, as they were wiggling up the stream. Uh, and the, I was brought up, of course, on the uh, margins of the Gower Coast, which is spectacularly beautiful. I liked fishing. I loved bird watching, and that's all way back in the earliest days. And that's always remained. And that was, of course, a, a wonderful background to being Secretary of State for the Environment because my heart was in it. Interesting. The, the two halves of your personality—you know—that you you love the factories and you love the you love the fields. Well, yes, I, I actually think that the, the interesting, trying to see how this has all come about, it, I like property. Uh, my wife and I have a very wonderful Georgian house, and that's been a hugely interesting part of our 
married life is accumulating the, the, the treasures and the, uh, and the furniture and the pictures and all these things. Um, but, but I go back to the, to the boarding house. Uh, I was, I, that was my first foray into property. And I've owned quite a lot of properties of one sort or another over many years. Um, and indeed, we own through the company quite a bit of the village uh, in which we live and which we've modernized and still are modernizing. Um, so it, it, it's, it's that interest in property that can be associated with Docklands Development Corporations, with the excitement of trying to help regenerate Liverpool, with the devolution agenda. Um, because out of my early experiences in property, which was solely about property, came the realization that dereliction was not just about the empty buildings or the toxic land. It was about communities of people who were living in deprived circumstances. And so we, I, I moved from just doing property to deprived communities. Yes, because I mean, the, the, the sense you're describing property in it, it, it doesn't have the sort of sense of you know making a quick buck, you know, milking the, the assets. It's, a, it's about incre- you know, improving on what's there, on what's there, and, and building something. It's nothing to do with a quick buck. It's all about uh, longevity, stability, investment, the future, communities. It's, it's it, it is. In, in, I would argue. Uh, a traditional Tory instinct. Yes, the the, the, the sort of old-fashioned sense of, of, of Toryism. Well, but, but combining, I I am perfectly happy to own up to a paternalist interests, to the concepts of noblesse oblige, and all of that, to use these these historic words. But uh, it's a fundamental part of any conservative philosophy. I'm aware that with privilege goes obligation. And um, with, the, with the idea to build communities and to build people's stakes in community. So there's nothing that you're, you, looking back, you're pretty happy with, with how things turned out? Well, it's, my life has, has delivered a hugely privileged experience. Um, I hope I've made some contribution, but I'm the first to recognise what huge enjoyment and satisfaction it has all been. I've always looked forward to Monday morning. Very important test. That so many people I think, oh God, I've got to go back to work. I, I couldn't get back to work quick enough. Lord Hesselstein, thank you very much. Pleasure. of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.